Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 46. Uh, today it's just me and a mic and a few thoughts I've had going on in my mind recently regarding, well, of all things, aliens, basketball, and the strange choice of God. Uh, those might be some odd things to meld together, but I hope to do so in the few minutes that I want to keep you uh, today. Before we dive into that, though, today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Now, research shows that the top two reasons why people don't read their Bible is that they are either too busy or they just don't understand what they're reading. Uh, Therefore, the goal and the mission of the Christian Standard Bible is to engage more and more readers with the Word of God with a translation that's accurate, readable, and shareable. The Christian Standard Bible strives to be a Bible that pastors can feel confident preaching from while also being a translation that all church members feel comfortable reading on their own. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now for kind of what I want to get into today, which is aliens and basketball. You know, I'm a huge NBA fan. I have followed the game for quite a while now, um, and we are coming out of what is called the free agency season. If you're a fan of the NBA, you'll know what I'm talking about with all kinds of uh, bona fide NBA superstars changing teams and changing the dynamic of the league and whatnot. So there's lots going on if you're an NBA fan. I just love watching the game, though. Um, I My loyalties primarily lie with the Miami Heat, and I know I've probably lost half of my audience now by talking about basketball, but just stick with me, and I think you'll be encouraged uh, by this. But uh, my loyalties lie with the Miami Heat. Uh, They drafted one of my favorite players back in 2003, that being Dwayne Wade from the University of Marquette. uh, But in large part, I am more of just a fan of the game in general. I just like watching basketball. I like watching good basketball, and I like uh, seeing how the game is played and seeing uh, how uh, certain uh, players are able to just master their craft and master the game, especially players like LeBron James who can really see things before they happen. Uh, It's not a secret that LeBron James has an incredibly high basketball IQ. He can uh, remember plays, remember entire sequences of games from years gone by. And it's because of that sort of memory that James is able to uh, really be the master of his game and really understand players' tendencies, 
uh, and what to do in certain scenarios. And um, I just love watching basketball like that. I love just seeing the game played at its highest level. Um, I also love, of course, reading about basketball too. There's countless books about basketball that are in the upper echelon of some of the greatest books ever written, um, especially the greatest sports books ever written. Are uh, I think most of them are basketball-related or in that family. Uh, and one of my favorite basketball reads of the past several years, though, is The Ringer's uh, Bill Simmons's book, The, the Book of Basketball. Uh, I think he wrote it back in 2009, I believe, which is, um, this book is, you know, widely considered the NBA fans' Bible, for lack of a better term. It's you're the go-to source for uh, at least all of the knowledge of the NBA. It's history. It, it's uh, the, the best takes you can have on, on the players that helped shape the game and make the game what it is today. And now it's, even now, it's uh, a decade old, and in that time, the game has changed astronomically. But um, I love The Book of Basketball by Simmons. It's a great book. If you love basketball, I would highly recommend reading it. But he has um, an interesting scenario that he spends a long time uh, considering. Uh, you know, if you're taking, t- take any sport really, if, if you want to determine, you know, one of the things you want to determine is the best player in that sport. Who's the best of all time? Who's uh, the greatest of all time? The GOAT, so to speak. And in uh, the NFL, often people uh, refer to Tom Brady as the GOAT and Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus as the GOAT in golf or what have you. Um, you know, uh, Pete Sampras or Roger Federer in tennis, whatever. Whatever the sport, there's always going to be the natural ranking of players and determining which era goes up against which era the best and how they relate to one another. Um, And Simmons spends a large uh, amount of his book trying to determine that and trying to rightly uh, judge players from different eras. Like, how do we judge the Bob Cousy's from the 50s and 60s of the NBA with the Steve Nash's from the early 2000s, especially when the games are different with how players and rosters and the technologies that we have today are just so vastly superior to what they had back then that it's it's hard to really judge the game when it's played in such a different way. Uh, but in order to kind of determine uh, Simmons's five best players of all time, uh, he creates this interesting scenario where... And it sounds a lot like Space Jam, which it probably was derived from. But regardless, he creates a scenario in which um, we ha- the Earth has been invaded by aliens. And these aliens have decided to uh, pit the fate of humanity and of their invasion, really, on a game of basketball. And the stakes are just at the highest that they could ever be. If the humans lose this game, uh, humanity for all time is enslaved they are the slaves of these aliens, and they'll be taken off this planet or enslaved on this planet to do the aliens' bidding. But if the humans somehow win, uh, the aliens will leave mankind alone. They will leave in peace. They will not harm anyone. They will go away and leave the Earth as it was. So, therefore, we're presented this scenario uh, on a game of basketball. So, therefore, if we want to win, obviously, we should choose the best players of all time. Unfortunately, the aliens are giving us all of the availability uh, to an opportunity to do just that. We, they allow us, uh, the humans, to go back in time and choose uh, certain players 
uh, from the NBA's history who perhaps may not be alive at this time uh, and bring them into this present scenario so that they can play a game of basketball and save the fate of humanity and uh, be the heroes of the world, the heroes of humanity at large. So uh, those are the stakes, though that's the scenario. And so then if you're faced with this situation, uh, the natural question for Simmons, and he poses it to you, the reader, uh, who would you pick for that starting five? Who, What five players from all of the years of NBA history would you select to, uh, to win this game? If you had the fate of everyone, the fate of the world ba- uh, staked to this game, who would you pick? And so uh, that leads to, uh, for Simmons, a very serious conversation uh, in determining who he would choose for this game. And his argumentation leads him to choose just an NBA super team consisting of Bill Russell, Tim Duncan, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James. And, you know, it's really hard to argue with his logic and how he selects these players. You know, even if, again, even if it is 10 years old, it's hard to argue with that team, that roster, that lineup of athletes. Um, by the way, I would love for Bill Simmons to revisit the scenario again, uh, especially since this book is from 2009, and there's been 10 years of NBA history since that time. And since that time, we've really seen LeBron ascend to the top of the game. We've had Stephen Curry just break out, Kevin Durant break out in his emergence. So I would really love to see um, Bill's rationale for this same type of scenario today. Regardless, though, um, I've often thought about this scenario um, and who I would choose. I don't really know who I would choose for the NBA scenario. But I've also thought about this scenario theologically. Uh, You know me, I uh, tend to read things theologically through that prism. And um, it's just so interesting to me just how um, accurately this scenario in choosing the best, quote-unquote, and how that uh, aligns with how a lot of times Christians ascribe um, a similar theory to uh, a similar metric system to thinking about how uh, we serve the church. You know, uh, and by that I mean, I think we often use the same system when we pick our theoretical Christian all-star team. We choose the most holy. We choose the ones who follow all the rules. We choose the ones who have the most verses memorized. We choose the ones who look the part, who act the part, who say the right things. Um, We choose the ones who appear to have everything together, and they don't appear to have any faults. And I think that's natural as humans, but I think we have it backwards. This isn't to say that we need to go out and search for um, people who don't want anything to do with God. However, I think when it comes to the church, God doesn't always go after the big, the strong, the mighty, or the most qualified people in the church. Actually, I think he does the opposite of that a lot of the times. He doesn't enlist those with the most power, with the most prestige, with the most pedigree behind their name in order to do his will, do his bidding, preach his word, preach his gospel. He doesn't, uh, God doesn't recruit holy heroes or saintly champions in order to uh, perform his mission of gospel proclamation. 
Actually, in fact, I think when you look at the history of who God chooses to do His will and proclaim His good news and carry on the mission of His kingdom, we have it backwards. We'd have to say that His choice is incredibly, incredibly strange. Right? Just think about who God chooses in, the, in, in just sort of a highlight list of, of people that he has selected to do his will. He, he chose a murdering stutterer to lead his chosen people, the Israelites, out of Egyptian bondage when he chose Moses. He chose a chronically depressed prophet to proclaim his message of judgment and repentance when he chose Jeremiah. His choice of John the Baptist is incredibly strange. A guy who lives in the wilderness, eats bugs, wears camel's hair on his back, and this is the guy that he chooses to herald the announcement of his coming kingdom. Think about, too, those guys who are closest with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, his, his confidants, his comrades, his inner circle, were finish, fishermen, were carpenters, were tax collectors, were zealots. These guys were the lowest of the low on the societal scale. These twelve apostles were outcasts in all intents and purposes. They were, uh, in many ways, failures. They were, many, in many ways, they were losers, But this is the pattern of God. This is the pattern of our good and gracious God. He chooses and uses the outcast, the poor, the oppressed, the weak, the small. That's what Jesus is affirming when he preaches in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, that it is to these people he has come. It is to these people that the gospel has come because it will sound good to those types of people. If you don't think that you need Jesus, Jesus' gospel won't sound good to you. This is God's choice. He calls the weak. He calls the feeble. He calls the unimportant. He calls the insignificant. As, as the writer John Acuff once said, he tends to recruit from the pit, not from the pedestal. It is these people that he has chosen to do his will. And he uses precisely those people who realize just how small they are and just how big he is in order to accomplish the great things of the gospel, to accomplish the incredible mission of gospel proclamation. It is these weak, small, feeble, frail people, people like you, people like me. See, I think this is what we all have to realize as we are in the church, that we are there not because of our names, not because of our performance, not because of our pedigree, In order to do big things for God, we have to realize how small we are. In order to be a faithful member in the church and to accomplish what is before us, we have to realize just how fickle we are, just how insignificant we are, just how tremendously replaceable we are. Again, we have it backwards. God does the opposite of what we would naturally do, naturally expect. He seeks out those whom we would probably naturally assume that he would reject. And it's by choosing and using those very people 
the, the smallest people, the weakest people. It's, it's precisely because of that that God gets the highest and greatest glory. If I have no ability to boast in what I have done and in who I am, who do I boast in? I boast in Him alone. I boast in Christ alone. Listen to how the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, how he explains this scenario, this phenomena. He says, Man chooses those who would be most helpful to him. God, however, chooses those to whom he can be the most helpful. We select those who may give us the best return. God, however, frequently selects those who most need his aid. God chooses his friend according to the serviceableness which he himself may render to the chosen one. It is the very opposite way of choosing. We select those who are best because they are the most deserving. He selects those who are worst because they are the least deserving, so that his choice may be more clearly seen to be an act of grace and not of merit. This is the choice of God. He doesn't choose the best saints in the bunch often to preach his gospel. He chooses the worst because those worst chiefly know that they are the chief of sinners. They know precisely to the the lengths and the degrees to which God went to save them. And it's those that are the most passionate about this gospel. It's those that God has chosen to do his will. This reminds me again of what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter to them. This is from verse 25 through 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is our boast. We boast in Christ, not ourselves. We don't boast in our abilities. We boast in the fact that beyond all imagination, beyond all logic, God has chosen us to do his will. God has chosen what is foolish and weak in the world to bring to naught that which is strong, that which is wise. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are, so that there's no cause for boast. That's what God does. This is God's strange choice. Those who are often the most fruitful in ministry aren't necessarily those who are the most qualified. It's those who boast only in the Lord and in His cross. This is what Paul was saying. This is what... Charles Spurgeon was saying, this is what the gospel says. That God calls and chooses and works in and through those who are honest with themselves, with those that know that without him they are absolutely nothing, and that it is only by him that they have been made something. 
This is God's business. He shows us who we really are to reveal who he really is. He shows us just how insufficient we are and to show us that he is our all-sufficient Savior. Over and over and over again, um, God destroys our self-sufficiency to reveal himself as our soul sufficiency. This is the pattern of Scripture. This is the, is the message of the gospel, that our littleness is exposed and God's bigness is exalted. That our fickleness and frailty is revealed in the light of God's steady and forever faithfulness. We have nothing to boast in except that good news. This is the church. This is me as a pastor. I have nothing to boast in. I have nothing to say except for that which God has given me. I have no position. I have no pedigree in which that I can find my calling. My calling is only because God has given to me by grace. And it's that very same grace that I know that I have been called to proclaim and preach with my life. God's team doesn't look like Bill Simmons' team. There's no all-time starting five of preachers that we can be boastful of or in. If anything, God's team looks like a starting five of 12th men, you might say. Men who never think that they will see the game. They never think that they're going to see playing time. And it's those people that God chooses and uses. It's the weak, the foolish, the surprising, the strange choice of God. I'm happy. I'm humbled. I'm glad to be among the chosen to proclaim God's truth. I'm happy to be a fool for Christ. I pray that you are likewise encouraged in God's strange choice of you to do His will. Wherever you are, in whatever role you are fulfilling, if you are exalting the name of Jesus above everything else, above your name, above your reputations, above your needs, you are exalting Jesus' name. You are fulfilling your calling and you are living up to God's strange choice of you. I'm happy God chose me. I pray you are likewise encouraged. That's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify. And thanks again to the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for, for listening, commenting, and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.